0: Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. I was supposed to be out of town last week. We almost were out of town. Uh, We actually went to Colorado on Wednesday of last week, the week before last. Drove all the way up there, and my grandson was sick on Thursday. And then we found out he had been exposed to COVID, And so on Thursday, my daughter said, well, it wouldn't hurt our feelings if you went home. So on Friday, we drove home, getting in about one o'clock. Now, it ended up my grandson did not have COVID. He was tested. He was actually tested twice, but he was sick. And um, so we had canceled all of our plans anyway. Anyway, we actually were scheduled to go to the monster truck show at the Colorado State Fair because my grandson loves monster trucks. My theory is he would have been scared to death of the noise once he heard how loud they really were, as opposed to the videos that he had been watching of them. So anyway, we were actually back in town last Sunday, but we stayed at home and watched the service on TV. So, picking up in Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at a few familiar stories in the life of Jesus. But before we do that, I want to remind you of Mark 1:1. 1, 1. It's been a couple of lessons since I've reminded you of this. The purpose of the book of Mark is to present Jesus as the son of God. That's important because when we see his miracles in today's lesson, when he feeds 5,000 people, remember that his purpose is not to feed 5,000 people. His purpose is to reveal that he is the Son of God. So, first we pick up with a little story about Jesus going home for the weekend. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Let's just stop right there. Remember, we have talked about this, that this is not that abnormal Every community would have a synagogue. The synagogue, remember, is not the temple. There are no sacrifices. There's no nothing in the synagogue except teaching. The idea was as the Jewish faith got scattered, we need to make sure that everyone understands the Jewish faith. And so they started synagogues to teach the people the Jewish faith. And it would not be abnormal for a visiting teacher to be asked to present some teaching. We see this regularly in the Gospels where Jesus is handed the scroll and he reads the scroll from Isaiah and he says, today, this has been fulfilled. So Jesus has been invited to teach in the synagogue. Not that unusual. So he starts teaching and people are amazed. Where did he learn this stuff? Who were his teachers? Because remember, if you go and get your PhD in nuclear physics or something, people are going to ask, who was your instructor? Who did you learn from? If you study history, who taught you? What school of thought are you from? Remember, when we get to Paul, Paul says, I am of the school of Gamaliel. I mean, I am from the top. so they look at Jesus and they go who taught you what great teacher taught you the truth and the wisdom that you are sharing with us today because that was important and guess what he didn't have a great teacher he didn't he didn't have a resume that listed the finest schools in the country There were good schools. There were good teachers of the Jewish faith. Paul sat under one of those, but Jesus didn't. So here is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Where did he get this truth? Where did he learn this stuff? Well, we know the answer to that because I just told you he is the son of God. You see, I sit up here and I read a bunch of books and I think about what I'm going to talk about and I kind of gather all this stuff. But you know what? Jesus doesn't sit around reading other people's books. (laughs) He just doesn't do that. Why? He doesn't need to do that. Why? Because he is the Son of God. Can you imagine somebody coming to Jesus and quoting something out of the Scripture and Jesus said, Yeah, I wrote that. Wait, <laughs> what? what? No, no. Yeah. Can you imagine this happening? But here's the problem He's at home. He came back to his hometown. These are the people who saw him when he was in the nursery at church. Here are the people who saw him when he was running down the street in his diapers. These are the people who have seen him his entire life. I used to joke about the fact that when I started teaching in this class 20-something years ago, there was actually a lady in here who had babysit me as a child. Okay? And I and I would tell my mother, I think that they're just amazed that I can talk in complete sentences, you know, from the nurse. here is Jesus coming back to his hometown. These are the people who knew him, who saw him when he was little. They knew that he hadn't gone to Harvard or Yale or any other major institution of higher learning. And they sit there and they say, where did he get this wisdom? What mighty works have done by his hand? And here it comes. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Why did they take offense at him? Because he was just, to them, a normal kid who had these highfalutin ideas and thought he was something special. Who do you think you are, the Son of God? And they took offense. Isn't this just the carpenter? You know, I suspect, and I think this is right, that Joseph, being a carpenter, would have taught Jesus to be a carpenter. And at some point in Jesus' life, he had made chairs and tables for these people. He had delivered them for his dad, and he was just the carpenter. There's his mother over there. We know Mary. Why He doesn't come from any great earthly family. And besides, here is his brothers and sisters, and we know that they're up to no good. Now, at this point, I need to step aside for just one second If you are a good Catholic, then you have been taught that Jesus did not have brothers and sisters because Mary never had sex. Mary was a virgin from the day she was born until the day she didn't die, she was ascended into heaven. And we as good Protestants reject that, although we acknowledge the fact that Mary was a very righteous woman, okay? Sometimes the Catholics put Mary here so we feel compelled to, you know, shove her down to the bottom, and that isn't true. She did respond to the word of God and was obedient to what God had told her to do, and that's a great thing, okay? But there is nothing in the scriptures that forces us to believe that she and Joseph did not have Other children. Now, if you are a good Catholic, you will look at this phrase and you'll say, these aren't brothers and sisters, these are cousins. Okay? They are are relatives. Uh, I, I am not under any compulsion to believe that. Okay? So, set that aside. Back to the real story. So, here is Jesus talking to his hometown And they are rejecting him. Not only are they rejecting him, they are taking offense because they think that he is putting on airs thinking that he can tell them how to live their lives. We have no record of what he taught. Wouldn't you love to have recordings of some of these sermons? You know, go on the internet and get the sermons that Jesus spoke to somebody. (laughs) But you can rest assured that he was telling them of the need of a Messiah, and that's me, not me, but that's Jesus, the need to repent, the need to turn from their lives as they were living them, and as today, sometimes when we teach that message, people get offended, particularly if they know the person and they don't want that person telling them the truth. So they took offense, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Now, this is interesting because, you know, I worry that my wife is sitting here on the front row. Okay? Why? because she knows all my deep, dark secrets. I can fool the rest of you. But people who watched me growing up might know a few things about me that I wish they didn't know. But Jesus is kind of different. Jesus never, ever, ever sinned. Now, we had grandsons in our house every day this week. We got home, right? Guess what? My cute, adorable grandsons are all sinners. They are. Why? They get it from their mother's side. No, they get it from us. That's why they say, we know his brothers and sisters, and they're sinners. But they didn't say Jesus was a sinner. Can you imagine growing up with a child, a cousin, a brother, a sister, who actually is perfect? Just think about it for a while. There's all kinds of, I'll say, made-up stories about Jesus' childhood. In fact, you can go to uh, the museum in England and there's all these you know, fancy paintings of Jesus as a child, forming, I mean, performing little miracles. You know, somebody kills a bird and he raises the bird from the dead. Okay? Why? Because he is, was, and always will, always will be the Son of God. But sometimes people don't like that. And Jesus just tells them. A prophet does receive honor, but usually not in his hometown. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out, uh, about among villages teaching. Now this is an interesting phrase. He did not, he could not do Mighty works there. We see this throughout the book, uh, well, throughout all the Gospels. This interplay between faith and Jesus' miraculous works because sometimes people have great faith. Remember the discussion from the last, the last lesson two weeks ago where the lady just snuck up behind him and touched his cloak and he, was, he, he marveled at her faith. Now, other times he looks at his disciples and he says, why don't you have any faith? So there's this interaction, but the reality is because of their unbelief. In fact, it says he marveled at their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, he did not bother doing a lot of miraculous deeds. And I say a lot because he did do some. Okay. We got rid of that part. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus knows something that his disciples don't know. And that is that at some point in time... He, Jesus, is not going to be with them. You know, it's one thing to follow around Jesus who is doing these miraculous things and you're just kind of there to watch. At some point, Jesus knows that they, the 12 disciples, or 11 of them, those, the 12 disciples, are going to need to go out and do it on his own. And as a good teacher... He's going to let them have a training class. So he gets his 12 disciples and he says you two, you two, you two, you two, you two, you two, go. Go to the neighboring villages. I can't go to all of them. But look what he does. He gives them authority. Authority is something that he possesses because of the nature of who he is. He being the Son of God, has the authority to cast out demons. He, as the Son of God, has the authority to teach to the people. And he turns to the disciples and says, I am giving you that authority. Here, take it. And sure enough, they go out and cast out demons as Jesus was doing it. Now, He gives them some interesting instructions, and one of the things that we have to think about is whether the instructions that he is giving them are to be considered normative to all missionary endeavor. And I think the answer is probably not, but let's look at what he tells them to do. Do not take an extra change of clothes. Do not take any food with you. Do not take any money with you. Question, why would he tell them to do that? I mean, isn't it good to leave on a trip with a couple of bucks in your pocket? Isn't that just normal? Years, years ago, I drove my daughter to a camp she was going to be working at all summer. And we took this young man with us on the trip He was actually dating my daughter at the time, but that's a whole different story. And we stopped for lunch. The kid has no money. None. Zero. Now, that's okay. I buy him lunch. But I'm going, you're going on a trip, and you have no money at all in your pocket? Why would Jesus tell him to do that? Well, I think I know the answer. Jesus is telling them to depend on him, to depend on God's provision to take care of them on their trip. He is reminding them that you are being sent by God and God will provide. Now, back to the question of just a moment ago. Is this to be normative for all mission work today? And the answer is, I think, no. There is no problem, there is no violation of scripture when you go to the mission field to pack a suitcase. That's okay. But we are to be reminded that we are dependent upon God for the actual work of the ministry. Whatever that work is, we need to depend upon God. And Jesus was preparing the disciples for the time when he was going to leave, and he says, when I leave, you're going to need to be dependent. Now, we see at the end of the book of John, this long discussion about the Holy Spirit is going to come. The Holy Spirit's going to take care of all this. He's going to provide for you, rah, rah. They didn't know that at this point. Jesus had to teach them to be dependent. But then he gives them instructions. So you go into town and you stay at somebody's house. Remember, there's no hotels, there's no, you know, you you pull into town, you Google on what the nice hotel is, oh, that one only has one star, you don't want to stay there. You pull into a town and you stay at somebody's house. That's the only option there was. Or you sleep outside. So you stay at somebody's house and you start to preach. Two options. One, they're going to love you. Or two, they're going to hate you. I've given you the quote before by the English pastor who said, when Jesus came to town, there was either a revival or there was a riot. He says, when I come to town, they serve tea. (laughs) Just saying things had changed. But Jesus is telling them they're either going to accept it or they're not. Remember our discussion several, several weeks ago about the soils? We cast the seed and some of it is going to fall on hard ground. Accept it. When that happens, when that happens, you walk out of town and you shake the dust off your feet. You're saying, I'm done. I did what I was called to do. I shared the gospel. I did it. Now, in another gospel, they are told, You're not going to run out of villages. Trust me, there's lots of places that need the gospel. What is the point? When you are sharing the gospel, some will respond and some won't. We saw this in the parable of the soils. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't hurt our feelings. It shouldn't belittle us. It shouldn't make us not trust the gospel. It simply means some people are hard soil. When we do that, put it behind you. You know what I would do, right? If one of you stood up here and yelled at me, that's a horrible lesson you're teaching. Shut up. You know what I would do? I would go home and I wouldn't cry. I'm not that kind of person. But I would mope about it all month. (laughs) For the rest of the month. How could they do that to me? I'm such a nice... No, forget about it. People are going to reject you. Just go to the next town. Shake off the dust as if that's not your problem. Because there's going to be lots and lots of opportunities. Now, in the middle of this story about Jesus sending out his disciples, because the story actually continues in just a moment... It's like there's this parenthetical statement. You remember this guy named John who we met over in chapter 1? John, not the Apostle John, but John, as we call John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. We met him in chapter 1 and we kind of forgot about him. He had one mission in life, which was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. That was it. And in the middle of this story about Jesus and his disciples, we find out what happened to John the baptizer. So, verse 14, King Herod heard of it. What did he hear of? He heard about what Jesus was doing. He heard about all the people being attracted to them. I mean, let's face it. You're the king. You have spies. You have people out trying to get the pulse of the, of the communities because you want to know if somebody is a threat to your government. You know, you have a guy that's sitting in the local bar and he hears some people thinking, talking about the Romans being lousy people and we need to rise up against them and you might need to do something about this. So G- uh, Herod heard. Now, remind ourselves, this is not the same Herod that was around when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod Anthipos, or whatever, however you pronounce his name. You really have to see a chart to understand Herod's family. First off, there's lots of Herods. They were all Herod something. Secondly, they're all intermarrying with each other. You know, you're marrying cousins and half sisters and this and that and the other. It's a convoluted chart. Suffice it to say, this is not the Herod that we see in the Christmas story. This is the next Herod. And there, were, there was another Herod that was supposed to be in between, but he got bumped off. And so, anyway. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work. But others said he is Elijah and others say he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Now, I find this interesting because later Jesus is going to ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? And what do they say? You're Elijah. You're a prophet. The same things that Herod has heard these are the rumors that are circulating around about who Jesus is except Jesus I mean uh, Herod is scared to death that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead because who killed John the Baptist let's keep going But when Herod heard of it he said John whom I beheaded has been raised For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod had a brother who had a wife who was a hot-smoking babe. Herod had a wife... He divorced his wife, and he went and took Philip's wife. Now, Herodias divorced Philip. Now, sometime in this series, we are going to get into a lesson about divorce. Trust me, none of, of Jesus' teaching about divorce applies in this case. This is just convenience. I don't like that one, I'll get rid of her. I like that one, you dump your husband, I'll take you. John the Baptist has this problem. He's a prophet. Some say he is the last Old Testament prophet. And Old Testament prophets are commanded by God to say certain things regardless of who they're saying it to and how it's going to be taken. That's why the true prophets of the Old Testament were usually persecuted. They were beaten. They were thrown in wells. They were stripped naked and told to wander around. It was a lousy job description. But you know, when God calls, you go. And John the Baptist had the audacity to stand up in public and say, Herod, you cannot be married to Herodias. What he's really telling them is that is not a legitimate marriage. End of story. Now... And Herodias had a grudge against him. I think this is interesting. Herodias had the grudge, the hot smoking babe. Herodias had the grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? That's Herod's authority. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This is an interesting relationship. Think about this for a moment. I am the king, and I go lock up the holiest man that I know of at the time. Okay, Let's assume that he hasn't had a run in with Jesus yet. And he locks him up. And here is John. Now, John's kind of an imposing looking character. Remember from the first chapter? He's wearing rough clothes. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He is just not the normal kind of guy that you have over for dinner in the palace. And Herod goes to talk to him. And what does Herod know about him? He knows he's a holy man. He just has to be around him, and he knows he's a holy man. He knows that he has something to say. And Herod wants to listen to him. And it says, this is interesting, that Herod is perplexed. Here is Herod living in the high world of real politics, you know, kill or be killed, you know, do what you have to do to get ahead, take what you want. If I want my brother's wife, I just go do it. That's the world that Herod lives in. And all of a sudden, there is this righteous, holy man telling him about the coming Messiah. Wouldn't you have, like to have that sermon on a CD? What did they talk about? But it says that Herod enjoyed listening to him. There was something in Herod that was attracted to this weird guy, but he couldn't let him go because you can't have somebody outside insulting the king and you can't have somebody insulting the king's wife. But he would go and listen to him and he was perplexed. And Herod feared John. Why would he do that? Herod has all the authority of the Roman Empire at his disposal. He can snap his fingers and you are dead. He can snap your fingers and you are removed from the country. He has all the power. And all of a sudden, he comes up against someone who is not intimidated at all by any of that. All of a sudden, he is talking to someone who is serving a higher master and has no regard at all For Herod's authority. And you know what? I would suspect that may be the first time in Herod's life that he ever came up against somebody like that. What do you do with them? I've told you the story before of the pastor in Eastern Europe who was arrested, and they threatened to kill him. And then they realized he didn't care. And it's like, what do you do with a guy who doesn't care whether you kill him or not? They ended up letting him go because they didn't know what else to do with him. They were used to scaring and intimidating people. And John was not going to be intimidated. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. So, Herod's stepdaughter, who was actually also his niece, but that's a whole different story. (laughs) Herod's stepdaughter comes in to dance. Now, we can have an assumption here, okay? She wasn't wearing a ballet costume doing an interpretive dance. This is probably an erotic dance done to woo the audience. Oscar Wilde wrote a play about this. It was turned into an opera by Richard Strauss, and this is where we get the phrase, you've heard this before, The Dance of the Seven Veils, where you start with seven veils and you end with none. This was an erotic dance done to please the men in the audience. Now, this is just weird. You are using your stepdaughter to impress your friends. And the idea is that Herod loved it. That's the story. He is very impressed, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. I will give you up to half my kingdom. Here is Herod in front of us, all of his buddies, and he is excited. And he turns to the girl in the presence of all of these witnesses, says, I will give you whatever you ask for. Up to half my kingdom. That was a stupid thing for Herod to say. On any level, that was a stupid thing. What this teaches us is that when we are living in a sinful environment, we make very sinful, stupid decisions. So, what does she do? She says, one moment, I'll be right back. And she went out and said to her mother... For what should I ask? And she, Herodias, said, The head of John the Baptist. This has actually circulated into my head for quite some time. Because to me, this demonstrates the power and intensity of sin. Think about it. Here is the opportunity. The richest guy in the country is telling you you can have anything that you want. It'd be fun. Pass around a piece of paper, everybody write on the list what it is they would ask for. I could come up with some ideas of some really good, cool stuff. Or just give me a check for half your kingdom. I'll go with that. Give me my body weight in gold. Let's start with that. Give me a bucket full of jewels. I could ask for anything. And what do they ask for? Revenge. This is the power of sin in our lives. God is telling us, I will give you whatever you want. And we ask for revenge. We ask that our sin be fulfilled. I am kicked off at you. You've heard the old joke, haven't you? God comes to the guy. The guy has a horrible enemy. He says, I'll give you anything you ask for well, whatever I give you, I'm going to give your enemy twice as much. And the guy responds, chop off one of my hands. So the enemy will lose two. That's what's happening here. This is the power of sin in our lives. We begin to lose any touch with what is important in this world. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod had been hearing about Jesus. But Herod was scared to death that this man that had been in his prison, this man who Herod had listened to, this man that Herod was afraid of, had come back. And guess what? John the Baptist had not come back. The man that John the Baptist had prepared the way for was back. And guess what? Herod was not going to stand up against him either. But Herod is going to kill him at some point. And that guy really is going to come back from the dead. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your miraculous deeds. Thank you for sending your Son on our behalf into this world. I pray, Lord, that we would fear God and not man. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.